Take your Bibles, if you would, for those that remain in the auditorium and are watching online. We start a new series this Sunday, a new series in the book of Daniel. Daniel is an interesting Old Testament book because I think it is simultaneously the book that most Christians know the most about and also the least about. Chapters 1 through 6, we're well acquainted. If we grew up going to Sunday school, we know the stories. The story of Daniel refusing the king's food and only going with vegetables and water. We certainly remember the three friends of Daniel, Shadrach. Excellent, right? Make the bed, shake the bed, and into bed you go. The fiery furnace. We all know Daniel in the lion's den. But after chapter 6, the back half of the book from 7 to 12 is all visions that Daniel has. And we may have had some teaching there, but it seems shrouded somewhat in mystery. And so our hope is, as we go through the book of Daniel, is to enlighten all of us to the reality that God is always in control, especially when there is evidence to the contrary. Our tagline for this sermon series is Daniel, standing firm in the sovereignty of God. This is the lesson that Daniel has for us. Daniel is privileged to have a front row seat for the sovereignty of God for his whole life. And by the way, spoiler alert, when you see the stories of Daniel in the lion's den and they're depicted, typically Daniel is a young man. Just to let you know, when Daniel was cast into the lion's den, he was in his 80s. So Daniel has a front row seat throughout his life to see the sovereignty of God, but more than that, he's blessed to receive prophecy from God that reveals to him and through him to us this bedrock truth that sometimes we are shaken from, that God has a plan for all things, including world powers and world leaders. Nothing is outside of God's control. All is part of his perfect plan. And even when we feel shaky, even when we feel unstable, we can stand firm in God's sovereignty always. So take your Bibles if you would. Perhaps you already have them. I hope you do. Everything we do here at Grace comes from the Word of God. It is not about our opinions or our preferences, but it is God's Word. We want you to have a copy of that in front of you. Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 uh, through 7. There are Bibles uh, provided for you if you don't have one, so please access one of those. I failed to get the page number before coming up here this morning, so hopefully somebody beside you can help you with that. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that with you. That's one of our gifts to you this morning. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace 
and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of God. What then is the situation that Daniel finds himself in? We know from verse 4 that he is probably a member of the royal family. It is quite possible that he may be a descendant of Hezekiah, and he may be part of the fulfillment of the prophecy that Isaiah makes to Hezekiah, and I believe Isaiah 39, where because of Hezekiah's foolishness in showing to the Babylonian contingent that comes to visit him after he recovers from his illness, and shows them all the glories of Israel, including all of the vessels of the temple. Isaiah says, there is coming a day, Hezekiah, when some from your family will be taken into captivity. And so it is quite possible that Daniel is part of that royal family, part of the nobility, and is taken in this captivity. This happens in the year 605 BC. It's the first of three of Nebuchadnezzar's interactions with the land of Judah, and Jerusalem in particular, And finally, in 586 BC, the temple is fully destroyed and Jerusalem is finally taken. But in this, the first of these captivities, Daniel goes. Daniel at this time, as best we can figure, is about 15 or 16 years old. And so he is in grade 9 or 10 or 11, I guess, depending on his age. He is quite young. He's in his teens. And he is taken, kidnapped by a foreign power against his will and taken to a very strange land, and a land that is anti his God, anti the God of Israel, and the one true God, Yahweh. What David, Daniel sorry, and his three friends then face repeatedly throughout the book is pressure to deny God. And that's our theme, that's our title for the sermon this morning, and that is our first point. There's great pressure on Daniel and his three friends to deny the God of heaven, to deny the one true God. You can imagine if you were 15 or 16 years old, removed from your parents' home, removed from all that you knew, all that was familiar, taken to a foreign land, and an attempted indoctrination process was put into place in your life. How able would you be to withstand the pressure to deny God? This is Daniel's three friends' is, uh, situation. So in the reality of the pressure to deny God, what do we see? First of all, to deny God, oftentimes the temptation to deny God comes when we focus on our circumstances. The circumstances are not good. It was believed by the nation of Judah, also the tribe of Judah, that they were unbeatable. They were God's people. And even though in 722 BC, the Assyrians had taken the 10 northern tribes captive They still believed that the temple would never fall. Solomon's temple and all of its glory would never, ever be destroyed, would never fall. And so they thought that they were unbeatable. And yet, they are not. 
Nebuchadnezzar's forces go into the temple and remove all of the vessels, or certainly some of the vessels, and take them to Nebuchadnezzar's God's temple. This is an ancient Near Eastern custom to show that your gods are superior to the gods that were conquered. Clearly, if the gods were superior to yours, they wouldn't have allowed themselves to be conquered. Earlier in Israel's history, the Philistines tried this with the Ark of the Covenant. And Dagon face plants a couple times, and so they send the ark back. But here, the vessels from the temple are taken, put in a foreign god's temple, and these young men, who are used to a life of some comfort and luxury, they're part of the royal family, they're part of the nobility, have that life certainly here, but it's in a completely different environment. The language is completely different, the customs and culture are completely different, the religion certainly is vastly different. Everything about their lives has been upended. Now, when things don't go our way and we focus on our circumstances, what is one of the first things that we begin to do? We begin to complain, begin to gripe, blame God. It's been very easy for these young men, if they had focused on their circumstances alone, to say, well, that's it. I'm done with this. I thought God was all-powerful. I thought God was the mighty one who could not be conquered. Now his temple has been raided, vessels have been carried off, people have been carried off, and the puppet king, Jehoiakim, is there to pay tribute to Babylon. What kind of God would allow this to happen? This God may not be as mighty as he says he is. And so the tendency, when we focus on our circumstances, there is pressure there to deny God. Notice in the back half of verse 4, there is an actual indoctrination program. What is Aspenez's um, task? To teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. They're going to learn a brand new language. That is the new language they're going to converse in. They're going to be taught all of the teachings of the Babylonians, all of the culture and the religion. They are no doubt going to be taught divination and how to read the future based on uh, the stars in the sky and the flight patterns of birds and all of these things the Babylonians are famous for. Horticulture, any number of things. Completely godless education. And this is the education that they're to receive for three whole years. The idea is we're going to conquer this people but the way we do that long term is that we turn their people into us. And so we change them. We tell them what the truth is. We tell them what is superior. We indoctrinate them in our education system. And so they begin to change how they think. They begin to change how they see themselves in the world. And they become more Babylonian, more Chaldean, and less Jewish. Notice in verse 5, there is the offer of decadence. They're going to have the food from the king's table, a portion of the food the king ate and of the wine that he drank. We wined and dined, all the best. And if we know anything of ancient Babylon and the hanging gardens thereof, it was opulent to the extreme. And the fact that Nebuchadnezzar can construct a statue of the size that he did out of gold shows just how... Uh, 
affluent the Babylonian na- uh, culture was and kingdom was. And they have, they have access to all this. How often does money or the promise thereof cause us to deny God? But notice there's something subtle here. Where do they get this food? They get a portion from the king. It's not just decadence, but also dependence. Nebuchadnezzar is no fool, and we'll see that as we walk through the rest of the first part of Daniel. And so he wants these youths to be dependent on him. You get what you get, and it's a lot, and it's great, but it's all from me. Without me, you don't have anything. He's trying to indoctrinate them into this reality of dependence. Forget about your God. He's unreliable. I'm your God now. I'll take care of you. How often do we believe this, especially in times of crisis? And if that weren't enough, lastly, there's an attempted change of identity. They are given new names. They will no longer be known by the names given to them by their parents, but they will now be known by these new Babylonian names. This, from one of the commentaries, just shows how this change was intended to have a deep-rooted effect on these young people, on these teenagers. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Belteshazzar means Bel protect his life. So Daniel is attempted to be reminded by his parents, there is a God, the one true God, and he is with you, but you're also accountable to him. And his name is changed to say, Bel, one of the Babylonian gods, he will protect you. He's the one that you should serve. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Shadrach means under the command of Aku, who's the moon god of the ancient Babylonians. Yahweh is gracious. From Yahweh comes grace and mercy and help in time of need. But his name is changed to say, no, Aku is the one that you can trust. He's the one that provides. Mishael means who is what God is. In other words, a different way of saying there is no God like Yahweh. And Meshach means who is what Aku is. A direct replacement or an attempted replacement from God as superior to Aku as superior. And Azariah means Yahweh has helped or will help despite the fact that at current it doesn't appear that he is or will. And Abednego means servant of Nebo, which is perhaps servant of Nabu. Their names are changed. Now, we may not feel as we sit here this morning that we are in a similar circumstance to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But I think we would be wrong. Because while we are not being threatened by being taken away to a foreign nation, the principles of God's word and the truth thereof are attempted to be taken away from our society and culture. We may not be taken away to a foreign culture, but a foreign culture has arrived in Canada. And the pressure is on. 
Some of you listening and sitting here this morning are going to face, in just a few short years, a situation where you will be faced with some sort of policy or document at work, and you will either need to sign it or lose your job. That's already happened and is happening with a great degree of frequency. There is pressure, pressure to not post or say certain things publicly or on social media. Pressure to conform. Pressure not to speak the truth, even in love. The pressure is coming and is here. And we, didn't get, we weren't taken away to experience it, but it is on its way and in many ways is already here. And so if we focus on our circumstances, we'll be tempted to deny God. If we allow ourselves and or our children to be indoctrinated by this anti-God way of thinking and living, we'll be pressured to deny God. We are certainly pressured by the decadence of our culture and the dependence on government and other institutions. And we definitely live in a day and age in which identity seems to be changed with great rapidity and frequency. So we have similar pressures as Daniel and his, his three friends face, pressures to deny God. But notice in the second place this morning, the preparation to trust God. How were they prepared to trust God, especially when it seemed, according to their current circumstances, that he was untrustworthy? Well, notice in the first place, providential circumstances. In verse 1, it says, in the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. If you know somewhat of the history of the kings of Judah, you know that Hezekiah was king, was a good king for the most part, but his son Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings Judah ever had. And that was where God said, finally, my judgment is coming on Judah. But after Judah, there's Ammon, but then after him comes Josiah. Josiah becomes king when he's eight years old, and when he's 18, he goes into the temple, and the book of the law is discovered. And the priests read from the book of the law, and Josiah rends his clothes and sackcloth and ashes, and says, we need to get back to worshiping God. The temple is cleansed of all idolatry, the land is cleansed of all idolatry, and Josiah actually fulfills a prophecy in 2 Kings 23 that goes all the way back to 1 Kings 13, where the man of God prophesies to Jeroboam, the first king of the splinter kingdom of Israel, that because of what he has done, there's going to be revival in Judah, and Josiah, he's named, by the way, hundreds of years before he comes on the scene, Josiah is actually going to burn the bones of the false priests at Dan and Beersheba, which he does. Full revival, one of the greatest revivals in Judah's history just before the captivity to Babylon, who's born essentially the year that Josiah discovers the book of the law in the temple? Daniel. Basically, the year Daniel is born, Josiah, at age 18, brings reforms to Israel, and God sends revival. Now, had Daniel been born under Manasseh's rule, had he been born even perhaps under Hezekiah's rule, the situation may have been different. But as we read verse 1, if we're not careful, we gloss over it because somebody says history and our eyes get glazy. But I love history, and when you understand what God is doing here, just prior to this captivity, 
Daniel is raised under one of the greatest revivals Judah had ever seen as a nation. God's word had been rediscovered and followed, and Josiah actually, 2 Kings 23, celebrates the Passover for the first time in years. Daniel is raised at a time in Judah's history where God is worshipped and praised in God's providence. He's also then given biblical instruction. These youths are skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge. They understand learning and competent to stand in the king's palace. As a member of the royal family of the nobility of some kind, Daniel would have received instruction. And who is the king as he is growing up and coming of age? It's Josiah, the king who for all of his days, followed after God. A lot of the kings at the end go bad. Josiah does not. So Daniel receives instruction, not indoctrination, but instruction in the truth of God and the truth of God's word. He's, He's rooted and grounded in that. Notice then that there is submission and dependence. He knows that he is not dependent on the king for food, He is dependent upon God. And sneaking into verse 8, we'll get into this next Sunday, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. We'll expand on that more next week. But Daniel has submission to the one true God. Yes, the God that seemingly abandoned him. Yes, the God that seemingly is weaker than the Babylonian gods. Yes, the God allowed him to be ripped from his home and taken to a foreign nation. Yes, This God is not just trustworthy when things go the way we want them to. This God is always trustworthy, especially when things do not go the way we want them to. Daniel believes this, even as a 15 or 16-year-old young man. And he is anchored in his true identity. His parents wisely give him this name, God is my judge. Not knowing necessarily that captivity was going to come in their lifetime and to the life of their son. But no matter where Daniel goes, his name is with him even though it's attempted to be changed and he knows his name and his name is God is my judge. God is with you everywhere you go. Honor him. Obey him. Submit to him. Trust him. And so for us then, how can we stand firm in God's sovereignty, even as Daniel and his three friends stood firm in God's sovereignty? Hopefully, we also have been prepared to trust God. It's one of the reasons why here at Grace, we do not go down rabbit trails or get off track. Because there are many lesser topics that we could cover, but there is one topic that must be covered, and that is God and all of his glory. We don't speak politics from this pulpit. We don't speak other lesser things, because we do not know what might happen tomorrow. But we believe we have this morning, and so we're going to preach the gospel, like we do every Sunday. Because we need to be prepared for whatever God may bring our way, and the truth of his word is what is important. Not to say that we can't discuss these lesser things, but we must remember that they are lesser things. Keep the main thing the main thing. 
Daniel and his three friends are given instruction and a rootedness and groundedness in the truth of God's word so that when they're ripped away from all that they know and all that is familiar and comfortable to them is gone, they still have this, a relationship with Almighty God. Notice then, how do we stand firm in God's sovereignty? We need to be prepared to trust him in all circumstances, but notice these five points as we close. First of all, God is sovereign over circumstances. We, if we focus on our circumstances, we are tempted to deny God. But notice that God is sovereign over circumstances. Notice what it says in verse 2. And the Lord gave. Don't miss that. Because in verse 9, he's going to say it again. And God gave Daniel favor. Who is the hero of every story of Scripture? And who is behind the scenes of everything that goes on throughout all of human history and predating human history and after human history is done and we're on into eternity? Who's the one who is sovereign over all things? Who is the one that has a perfect plan that all things are adhering to? Who is the one that is always in control? God. Why in the third year of Jehoiakim, did Nebuchadnezzar, did Nebuchadnezzar win because he had superior troops? Did Nebuchadnezzar win because his gods are greater than the God of heaven? Did Nebuchadnezzar win where Assyrians and even Egyptians and others had failed? No. Why did Nebuchadnezzar take some of Judah into captivity? Because it was God's will that it would be so. God gave Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is seemingly going to learn this, at least for a short period of time, in Daniel chapter 4. Because his philosophy is, I'm awesome. And God says, no. Only one being is awesome, and that's me, not you. God is sovereign over our circumstances. That cancer that has come your way, that's at God's good hand. Do we want it? No. Do we understand it? No. But does it lack meaning or purpose or significance? Never. Because God is in control of all things. If tomorrow what we're doing right now becomes illegal, is God suddenly on vacation? Is he indifferent? Has he walked away? Has he dropped the ball? No. God is sovereign over all circumstances, all of them. The only way that Nebuchadnezzar wins is not because he has a superior military or superior gods. God allowed it to happen. God gave. Notice God is sovereign over timing. We've already mentioned this, so we're not going to spend too much more time on this, but how amazing is the timing in Judah's history? The trajectory from Manasseh and even to Ammon seems really, really bad. They're just headed straight hell-bent on destruction. And yet, out of nowhere, seemingly, just before captivity, who ascends the throne of Judah? At age eight, Josiah, a man after God's own heart, in the spirit of his great, 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 how many greats, grandfather David, who was prophesied to be such all the way back in 1 Kings 13. God brings revival. And his people, once again, turn their eyes on him just before he allows them to be taken away into captivity. Daniel has a lot to say about what happens when the, the culture around you is hostile. And very little of it is how we've practiced that thus far across Canada. But that is for another sermon.
But God's timing is always perfect. Daniel and these three young men are raised under revival. They know God. They see him. They converse with him. They know that he is true and they know that he is real. And then captivity comes. Because in the third place, and these last three points, I want to thank Del Ralph Davis, my favorite commentary on Daniel. If you want to grab a commentary on Daniel, that'd be the one that I would get. God is faithfully sovereign. What did God say? God said, because of your sins, Judah, same as the sins of your brothers and sisters in Israel, you are going into captivity. See, we like it when God's sovereignty works in our favor. We like it when God's sovereignty means the good promises. But see, God also makes other promises. And at the end of the day, would we want him to be anything else? Yet, in the midst of his judging hand, we can sometimes feel, really God, where's that grace and mercy? But God is faithful always to his word. What did he tell them in the book of Deuteronomy? Obey me and you'll be blessed. Disobey me and you'll be judged. What did he tell them in Leviticus? Obey me and you'll be blessed. Disobey me and you'll be judged. He promised during the reign of Manasseh, the evil that was done under Manasseh, and he says, for this, you are going into captivity. And you're like, but God, what about the reforms and the revival under Josiah? What about these, these four young men and all of the good? Because God is always faithful to his promises. Always faithful to his promises. It is always for our good and it is always for his glory, but he is always faithful to his promises, even the promise of judgment. God is also securely sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar goes into the temple of God and takes some of the vessels of the house of God. No doubt he already knew they were there there because of the Babylonian contingent that, that came to Judah under um, Hezekiah. And he brought to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. We are quite radically insecure, oftentimes. God is not. God can handle the vessels of the temple being removed and taken and put into the temple of a false god or gods, and that doesn't change who he is. He's not shaken by that. His, his identity is not changed or assaulted by that. He's secure in who he is. He doesn't pitch a fit when these things happen. Now, in the Philistines' case, he decided to make Dagon do a double face plant. He doesn't. But he will not put up with being disrespected, and we know Belshazzar does that, and the Medo-Persian Empire enters the city of Babylon that night. But we'll get into that in just a moment. The writing on the wall, which would be another story that we're familiar with from Daniel. But God is secure in who he is. And we ought to be the same. See, God has told you who you are. If you do a search, and I just did this online with the ESV, type in the phrase, in Christ. It appears in the ESV almost 90 times. If you want an extra study and it's on the question for the reflection, go through and see who you are in Christ. That's who you are. Not what the mirror tells you you are, not what culture tells you you are, 
not what even those near you that love you tell you are, tell you who you are. You are who the one who made you says you are, and in Christ you are so many things. You are adopted, loved, forgiven, free. You will never be left nor forsaken, and the list goes on and on. Justified, sanctified, one day glorified, all this and so much more is your identity in Christ. That's who you are, not all these other things. And notice God's humble sovereignty. God allows his vessels from his temple to be taken and put in a foreign temple. Now, what else does this remind you of? Our God is secure in his sovereignty, and so his sovereignty allows him to humble himself and bear shame and reproach for the people that also bear his name. Who else did that on our behalf? Jesus. Jesus was willing to come from the glories of heaven to empty himself, as Philippians 2 says, to take on human flesh, to become one of us, We cannot reach up to him, and so he came down to us. He became a servant and went all the way to that old rugged cross that we just sung about. He bore our shame and our sin. What kind of God would love us We continually bring shame and reproach upon his name. We are hypocrites, and we are weak, and we are fickle, and we complain, and we gripe. We like our comfort, and we eschew sacrifice. We don't worry about the poor, but we worry only about ourselves. The list goes on and on and on and on. What God would love us? God would, that's who. And he loved us enough to become one of us. And as we sit here this morning, Jesus Christ the righteous is still one of us. When he resurrected in his glorified body, that is how we one day will see him when we are in his presence. He has identified with us all the way. Now that is love. Even a small glimpse here where God allows his name to bear shame and reproach because of the sins of his people. That's who God is. He does it all the time. And he did it most notably on the cross of Jesus Christ where sin and salvation met. How amazing is God's grace. Let's look at him in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for this study in the book of Daniel. We look forward to revisiting many of the stories from our youth. Perhaps we think we know well, but there is always more for us to learn. Father, what more relevant book could there be than for us to be instructed in how we can stand firm in your sovereignty?
especially in the midst of a hostile culture. Everything is against Daniel and his three friends. Their names, their food, their language, everything about who they are is attempted to be changed. And yet, Father, this one thing they cling to, especially in a hostile environment, those things are not true. They are lies. But there is one who is true, the one true God. He is the one we will serve. And the attitude that these four young men have, that the three young men verbalize when they say, if God saves us, that's amazing. But if he doesn't, we will not bow to anyone else but him. They already had that in their hearts here in chapter 1. So Father, help us not to focus on our circumstances. Help us not to feed into the indoctrination that is in the culture around us, especially as they come for our kids. Father, help us not to be enamored with the decadence as it always comes with hidden dependence. Father, may we always find our identity in you. May we rest in your sovereignty. You are great and you are good. Always. May we believe that and live that, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.